0: Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. I have a topical message this morning. It happens to be in the same book that we are going through verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Acts, chapter 11. The book of Acts, chapter 11. In a moment, we'll stand and we will look at verses 19 through 26. The title of this morning's message is A Cup of Strength. Our text is Acts 11, verse 25. I'll read that verse, and then we'll stand and we'll get the context with verses 19 through 26. Verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Loaded into that one verse is a great amount of our New Testament. Let's please stand and Consider verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Please be seated. I got goosebumps reading that. I hope you paid attention to it because the context is critical. We are considering Barnabas this morning. And uh, just in my preparation for last week's uh, sermon slash exposition, it just was so ministered to by the research that goes involved in, in preparing to speak on a particular passage of Scripture. So much so, perhaps for the first time that I can recall in my ministry, I knew what I was going to speak the following Sunday as far as a a strategic message, a a topical message. Once again, verse 25 of chapter 11 is our text. That's the flagship. It gives the command to everything else that's going on in this morning's analysis. Then Barnabas departed for Saul to seek departed for Tarsus II, seeks all. Somewhere in Jerusalem, these two had met about nine years earlier, about, uh, before this verse that I just read, verse 25. These are two of the most vital men in the New Testament. I didn't say the most, I said two of two of the most. And before I open it up, I w- want to say that the New Testament tells the grimmest tragedy in human history. Of course, the the crucifixion of the Son of God. It should therefore be a depressing book, you would think. But it is not. On the contrary, it is the most heartening book in all of human history ever to be written and that ever will be written this side of heaven. It has inspired a type of hope that roars against the roars of the lion, Satan. In First Peter chapter five, Peter said, "Be sober. Peter liked that word. He uses it three times in that letter. He did not want Christians to be reckless with their faith. You've met the type of Christian. I'm a Christian, and therefore they think that any, anything they say is going to have weight behind it. They'll say, you know, God has told me, God has shown me, and, and this nothing wrong with that if God has indeed done it and the facts establish it. But oftentimes there's a lack of sobriety. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be hardworking, because Satan's not playing. And that's what he is telling the Christians. I get the feeling that there are some who go through their Christian lives with only hope. That's all. They just keep hoping. And they seem only to have Hope that's built on sand. They have the Lord's name. They have saved. But there's really nothing more going on than that. I would not want to come to church, for example, only to be patched up. Every Sunday I come to church hoping the pastor is going to say something that's going to make me more comfortable in my hope. And that is the extent of my walk. That would mean I would be missing out on my Christ-given birthright to be a light, to be Christ-like, to be aggressive in my faith, militant against evil and sin, wickedness. The more Christ-like I can become, the more glory to God. I prefer coming to church to be reinforced for serving, for serving Christ in church and out of church. Not doing my own thing, but doing the things that I know God has impressed upon my heart, and that is actually a blessing. One of the prophets said to one of the kings, for the eyes of Yahweh run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Would you want a pastor to week after week come up and tell you it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay? Uh, I would not get very strong from that after a while. I would get very weak because there are a lot of things that aren't okay and they're not going to be okay. I don't want to be on a plane that's crashing and saying, oh, it's going to be okay, (laughs) unless everybody here is saved. I believe that those who have only hope don't know that hope alone is insufficient for effective service, for effective Christianity And this perhaps is something that stood out to me so much. I have always, I've known it in my walk, but to have it articulated in my heart by the Holy Spirit that it's not enough to have hope. It's not enough to have love. They are vital, they are critical, but they're not enough. And I, you know, those that are always looking for encouragement, but really not giving any encouragement, fall into this category. They're just receiving, receiving. And there's a time. There's a time to weep. There's a time when we need comfort. There's a time when we even need to be uh, coddled. But not all the time. Many times when we get to that place in life where all we have is hope and that's how we live our lives, we end up draining our environment of those things that are helpful, of the cheer that should be there instead of the doldrums we then start living beneath our potential all right that's the setup that is the preparation for what's coming this man barnabas barnabas the man with the name that is loaded it is a loaded cannon that's what his name is not because he bore the name but because he was worthy of the name god frequently assigned nicknames Even into the book of Revelation in chapter 2, he's telling them, you know, you stick with me and I'll give you a name. Jacob. He gave Jacob the name Israel. Jacob means the trickster, the con artist. But after God touched him and he walked the same no more, his name was now Israel. Believed to be the one governed by God now. When Jesus met impetuous Simon, he gave him a new name, the stone, the movable stone. Christ is the immovable rock. And Peter is this chip off the rock, you could say. He's, he's, he's like the big rock. He's just not as big. And he called him Peter, Petros, uh, Petros. Proverbs 22, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Well, he's saying, what's it, you know, you become a billionaire, but you you know, you're hated because you're evil. The contrast is in that. Unfortunately, giving out tasteful nicknames to people has died out. I, was grew, I grew up in a time when nicknames were still, you know, going around. Um, I would like a nickname like, you know, the gentle one, <laughs> the, the soft-spoken. Uh, I admire that when I find it in other people because I don't find it in me. Financially, Barnabas was well off. And a Levite, he was a spiritual man by birth, and he was a generous, wealthy man. Acts chapter 4, we read of him the first time in the New Testament or in the Bible. Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. So the name Barnabas means the son of encouragement. His given name, Jose, is the Greek form of this of the Hebrew name Joseph. We would say Joseph, more closely in the Hebrew, and that name means uh, that God will add, God will increase. It was an old and honored name. In fact, he had been named for the one one of the twelve sons of Jacob. That God used to save his people from starvation. It was an honorable name. But the disciples saw something more. The handpicked men of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget these apostles that changed his name. They were handpicked by Christ and they saw something more in this man. Actually, it kind of fits, does it not? God will add, and God adds a nickname to his given name encouragement. Because of his ability to build others up. His ability to build people up. I am attracted to that. That makes me part of the solution. Such people stand out because they are the anti-venom to those who are discouragers and discouragement. You can find discouragement without people. But when you find people, you're not going to be without some that will discourage you at some point. In the Bible, the name stands for nature. That's why God would change names. When God, when the Lord gave a name for someone, it was identifying a nature, a target, something to shoot for. So when Jacob's name was changed from the the heel catcher, the con artist, you could say the one that Sort of uh, exploits people to the one governed by God. There was a significance that belonged to that, as it does with here with Barnabas, the encourager. Name is nature. Not all live up to an honorable name. Barnabas retained the nickname for the rest of his life because he continued to live up to it. It wasn't he was not a flash in the pan where he just you know he was encouraging guy back then. But life has beat him up, and now he's cynical. That was not Barnabas. He suffered with Paul in ministry. And we have no indication that this spirit of encouragement that God placed in his heart ever waned. Five times, Paul refers to him as Barnabas in his writings. And those writings cover a a few decades. And so there you have the, the name still glowing, still a beacon Still a name that when said, it kind of warms the heart. The Greek word, consolation, comforter, encourager. That's that's what his name is in the Greek. It's the same. It's the same word used by Jesus in pronoun form for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great comforter. He is the helper. That is an accurate translation of the paraclete. He is the one that comes beside you, to assist you an advocate we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the son we have an advocate in the holy spirit we are to have advocates amongst each other ask yourself do i support do i encourage or do i drain the environment of cheer even the weakest christian can can encourage when jesus said this about the holy spirit he says But when the helper, some translations use the word comforter, both are correct, paraclete in the Greek. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, he will preach of me. Jesus used that word of the Holy Spirit twice in that one sermon, well, in John 14 uh, 15 and 16, that one discourse that he gave to his disciples. He refers to the Holy Spirit of God or God the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the helper. It is, it's, I like helper better because comforter sort of uh, it, it limits it. Sort of makes implies that it'll just make me feel better. But helper means he might throw me into the battle and help me while I'm not feeling so bad, so good. I like that one. It means one coming to the aid of another. This was Barnabas. This is the Holy Spirit. It tells the kind of man that Barnabas was. I wonder what, what people will say when I'm in heaven and they're still on earth about me. I'm not trying to turn the sermon into talking about me. I'm saying it in a rhetorical sense because it would uh, evoke in your own mind, hopefully, what will people say about me? He owed me ten bucks. That name that he bore, that he earned, tells the craft to which he applied himself, a skill. And skills are perishable. You know, if you're good at uh, something and you stop doing it, you get bad at that thing, or at least worse than what you were. How tragic to give one's life to something that the world does not need. You see, from a Christian perspective, that means something. From a worldly perspective, it does not. May not, but it really doesn't register with the same intensity, the identical power behind it, because of our association with the throne of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. And when Jesus says that to me, and I hope He does, my first thought was going to be, "You talking to me? I'm the well. I'm the good and faithful servant. You must be talking about this one." How tragic, again, to give. One's life to something that the world does not need. We are to give the world what it doesn't have and what it does need. That is Jesus Christ. But to be skilled enough in giving Christ to the world, to be skilled enough to pour from my cup into the cup of another, strength. Just to give someone a cup of strength, especially to the weakened soul, that is skill. With words... With words of life from Scripture, Barnabas could give a spine to the spineless if they were willing to receive it. He would give them courage. Hope needs courage. Not enough to hope. I have to have something else. I have to have courage if I'm going to hope properly. If I want courage that's built on rock then it has to have courage. Well, if I want hope, that is built on rock. I have to have courage. It is important because it is essential to joy in life. Take courage out of your life and how can you have fun? This is one reason why so many Christians come to church and all they want to do is be patched up all the time. Instead of saying, send me in, give me some action. I'm ready to build up others. We serve Christ better when we are brave. But Satan knows that if he can keep us fearful, we can't serve so well. Love makes us brave. And out of that love, there is hope in situations that are uncertain and frightening for us. And there's where we need courage to be activated within our hearts. We have our responsibilities. And one of them is, is to fight fear. I I know, there are times you, you you try to fight the fear and it just won't die, but you're still fighting it. And that's courage. Courage is duty while afraid, while frightened. You're doing what you have been assigned to do. Nonetheless, the world has pulled us off. Many times they still do. Battlefields are littered with stories of those who had courage under fire. We serve Christ better when we're brave. That's true, but I'm not always brave. Love and hope, they need courage. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. We get so centered on the the, the beast before us, the problem at hand, the shadow of death. It's terrifying unless we remember Hey, I'm my my role. My role here in the shadow of death is to be strong. Whatever treasure or talent you may possess, whatever blessings God has bestowed upon you, if you've lost your courage or if you have an unrealistic hope, you become a liability more than an asset at that moment. Then we're miserable likely making others miserable, miserable around us too. When hope dies, we lose our zest, not only for serving, but even for living. This explains the cynical and the jaded individual. You younger Christians, you really haven't been around long enough, hopefully, to be cynical yet, unless you've learned it from someone. You know, an adult can teach you to be cynical, criticize everybody, everything, all the time, automatically. To be jaded is, so what's the use? What's the, you know, uh, ministers, pastors, they have to fight that. At some point in their ministry, they're going to get to a place where they're going to say, why bother? Because the cycles, you know, the things keep coming around. There's a time to be happy and there's a time not to be so happy. And then you get happy again and then something happens, you know, and it's cycled. And after a while you say, I'm sick of this treadmill. And Christ says, you have no right to be sick of it. You're a servant. And to that the believer would say, "Amen. And may I never forget it. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I am a bond slave. I am a willing subject to the king. When hope dies, this explains so much. But if we have not biblical courage within our hope, Then, how do we differ from the world? I've got to have something that distinguishes me from the person who doesn't have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I think that the struggle to have that distinction often creates a hopeless state. I try, but my flesh prevails so often, and I become uh, hopeless in my quest to be righteous and to be Christ like. Don't let that happen. Just keep on. Just keep on swinging that little sword of yours. It's better to swing a little sword than no sword at all. And when we are not an asset we are a liability if we lose this courage that belongs to hope and to love. Regardless of how many gifts we have as I've as I've mentioned not even the mighty Elijah that mighty prophet of the Old Testament was of any use when he lost his courage. He laid hold of hopelessness instead. And there he sat under a broom tree complaining about his life. In fact, what happened in that story, uh, to get to that place where he sat under a broom tree whining about his life and his condition, it came right after this super victory for God. There he was on Mount Carmel. One prophet versus 800 other prophets, false prophets. He said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Lightning came down on the altar that was drenched with water and ignited it and proved that Elijah's God was God and their God was false. And and the the false prophets were then slaughtered. Well, that did not sit well with Ahab and Jezebel, especially Jezebel, that wicked Sidonian princess that slithered her way into the northern kingdom's palace. What happened next is she sends a note to Elijah when he gets, comes back from the victory. And the note says, I'm going to have you killed. And the Bible says it just like this. Elijah ran for his life. He ran far. He leaves his servant behind and he keeps running. And he sits under the tree. Spurgeon said of that moment in scripture, he said, Elijah retreated before a beaten enemy. I need to hear stuff like that as a Christian so that I can avoid it. 1 Kings chapter 19. But he himself went a day's journey after he left his servant behind into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Yahweh, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. In that is a suggestion that Elijah thought he was, you know, I'm serving. Those are, many of my fathers were apostates, and, and they were. He felt so alone, so depressed. He failed God after this giant victory. He needed a great encourager. At this moment, he needed someone like Barnabas to come along and say, it'd be all right. We can recover. We can fight our way out of this. But there was none. So God sent an angel. The next verse. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him, and he said, Arise and eat. Get up and eat. You've got work to do. You're not fired. You're still in it, Elijah. It's no victory for the devil. This is going to be more ministry for you. He's likely sleeping because he's so depressed. By the way, depression did not keep David from writing psalms of praise, hope, and courage. David tells us he was depressed. Why are you cast down my soul? He says that three times in two psalms, right, lined up together. But in Psalm 31, David said, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in Yahweh. Well, Yahweh is is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Be of courage, spoken by a man who knew what depression was. And so, Elijah failed, God builds him back up. David was depressed at times, God built him back up. The legacy that Barnabas has left to the church is astounding. And I want a piece of that action. Barnabas shows that it's not what we take into heaven, but what we leave on earth. That's quite a big statement. Because really, what can you bring to heaven that adds anything? Is there something like, oh, Rick's here. Oh, now we're really going to have a good time. Well, I got to verify that. But anyway, Barnabas, he's a big deal. He's a heavy hitter. Because he brought encouragement and courage into the arena. He didn't bring it, you know, to the ice cream parlor. He brought it where the fight was. And he did it effortlessly from what we know of him. And I can't go into all the things from him. Just reading the section we read, we reread how he encouraged them. He was a man. He was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We'll get to that as we do the exposition through, through the book of Acts. But here's a little timeline going on to what's happening when he shows up where it says that he went to Tarsus to get Saul. He was... Saul at that time, he became Paul. But here's a timeline. Stephen, Jewish, living in Jerusalem, becomes a Christian, stands up to Judaism and says, your Messiah has come and you crucified him. And he just blisters them, the leaders. He just flays them. So thoroughly was his sermon that the Apostle Paul couldn't get it out of his head. So they killed Stephen. After his martyrdom, after Stephen was killed for preaching the gospel, the Christians dispersed. We just read that a moment ago. They dispersed because persecution ignited in Jerusalem. Earlier, the Jewish common people, they accepted the Christians, admired them. But now, now that everybody understands where the lines are, they're persecuting them. The apostles remained in Jerusalem at this time, but the, the, especially the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that were influenced by the Gentile culture, the Grecian culture, they're the ones that, almost nomadic, they, they leave. They go up to Antioch, which is in Syria, to the north of Jerusalem. And a movement of the Holy Spirit happens there, so much so that we're first called Christians in Antioch. That's where the Gentiles will begin flooding into the church. That's where we get Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, I had to deal with Peter and Barnabas because of how they dealt with the Gentiles in the church. Well, when that movement started up in Antioch, Barnabas is dispatched by the believers in Jerusalem, by the leadership. Barnabas, go check it out. Tell us if this is real or if it's false. He goes up there and he is astounded by what he finds. He knows instantly what to do with this. I got to get Paul. The man that he brought to the disciples years ago that they sent away, he's going to go get him. He's going to travel, well, 80 miles by sea, over 100 miles by land, however way he went, we're not told, but he traveled. His traveled, you know, just try to fly somewhere, go 100 miles today and it's difficult. Imagine then when you walked, you rode on a cart, a horse, or something else, or a boat that was rickety, I mean, look how many times Paul spent a, a night, in, I mean, was, suffered shipwreck. No less than five. Anyway, Barnabas, he encouraged people by believing in them. Paul picks up on that as the, the disciples. That's why the name is loaded. I love, as a pastor, giving someone a chance to serve. It's kind of disappointing when you get, you know, when, it, we take this very seriously Take it to the Lord. Does this person? We come and make the offer. We'd like you to head this ministry. It's a very serious on my end, and it is disappointing when they kind of treat it like, eh, yeah, you know, kind of ho hum. Which isn't often, but sometimes, because you give you believing in them. You see, I believe that God is calling you to to help the body to serve in this capacity. When Paul was converted. He goes up to Damascus in Syria, and he rocks the world. So bad, up so, so thorough, so, so damaging was his work to Satan that they sought to kill him. And they had to let him out of the, over the city wall in a basket. That's like a laundry basket or something. I don't, I don't know, but uh, that's how humiliating. He escapes for his life, and he comes to Jerusalem after his conversion. His situation is desperate. And is desperate for two reasons. One, his former friends, because remember, Paul was persecuting the Christians. He stood by the clothing of the men who stoned Stephen to death. Being a Pharisee, he was not permitted to be part of the actual stoning. But he was there. He heard the sermon. And Stephen just dismantled all of his prejudices concerning the Christ. Well, those former friends, they hated him with the intense hatred that men give to a turncoat, because that's what they thought he was to them. He traded sides. No good traitor. We send him out to arrest these heretics, and he becomes one. Then, his new friends, who weren't very friendly, the Christians. They avoided him. After all, he persecuted them. He persecuted their family members and friends. They did not hate him. But they feared him and they doubted him. It's not nice to be doubted, is it? When someone doubts you, they're questioning you. Your ability, your integrity sometimes. It was Barnabas and Barnabas alone who reached out to Paul when others would not. And he got him. Paul gets converted. He's in Jerusalem. The saints don't, the Christians want nothing to do with him. Barnabas, Acts chapter 9, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas brings him to the apostles. When he comes in there, he says, Paul, tell him." Because Barnabas didn't doubt him. He believed him. He took a risk. A big risk. It took hope. He was hoping that they were going to accept him. But that hope was supported by courage. He had to be brave to go to Paul to do this. To pull off such a daring move. And he did it twice. With Paul. Twice. Later. When Paul Paul proved to be too much for Jerusalem. Here's another Stephen. And James... James, the brother of the Lord, he wasn't as aggressive in dealing with Judaism, not even close. He was part of the problem in Paul's life. Paul points out in the Galatian letter, men from James came up. They came to spy us out our liberties, and he just, he puts his little shots in there. And uh, James was a big figure in the church in Jerusalem. Anyway, later when Paul proved too much, here's what it says in Acts chapter 9. And when he, Paul, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed with the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Paul, they're going to kill you. We got you a ticket here for a boat ride to the other side of the Mediterranean. Get out of town. And when Paul left, they waved and they said, whew, Be a lot more peace now with our neighbors without Paul here. That's not written, but it's there. Because we know subsequent events, what Paul had to deal with from Christians, Jewish Christians who weren't getting it yet. We'll come to some of that. Paul was there for years. We don't know exactly how long, but we know it was some time. And thus our text, Acts 11, verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So he first brings him to the apostles who were afraid of him, and now he's going to retrieve him to bring him up to Antioch. Fine, we'll bypass Jerusalem. God's doing something in Antioch. I need this man. He does something about it. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year... They assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They were teaching them. That presupposes they needed instruction. You do just come to Christ and you know it. That's, that's insulting. And that's why God raised up teachers in that church to handle the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Then... Then God singles out these two men. And we still haven't gotten to the value of Barnabas. We've got some of it, but there's a bigger one coming. God singled out these two men. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. That means as they worked in ministry and fasted, hoping God would, work, uh, would, would tell them something. Fasting is not designed to get something from God. Fasting is to get God To kill, to to silence the flesh, to subdue it so I can hear the spirit. And he continues in Acts chapter 13, Luke does. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And of course, they go into Asia and they, they, they start making converts and building churches there. But he's not done yet. Barnabas is not done. That is more to his ministry. It is his nature to build up, to help the helper. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That John that is mentioned there is John Mark the writer of the gospel according to Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. And no question, he's part of this outreach ministry with Barnabas and Paul because of Barnabas. John Mark lived in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, they went to Jerusalem to take uh, offerings to the church there who was struggling during the famine to give them an account of things. Uh, one particular On the way back, John Mark says, where are you guys going? Can I come? And he'd come along. We're going to share the gospel. Well, John Mark goes out and finds a mission field is ugly. Living with those Gentiles proved too much for him. He was somewhat of a sheltered child. So Barnabas reached out to Mark after Paul rejected him because after John Mark left them on that mission field, where it says here in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He quit the ministry. Paul said, bookmark that, he's not a good servant. Barnabas didn't have share that, that view. So later, when Paul and Barnabas saying, hey, look, the work in Antioch is stabilized. We need to go out and make more converts. Go out into all the world. Let's, let's do this. Then we pick it up in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with him John, called Mark. Then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Barnabas lost a great friend that day in order to show grace to another friend, his his cousin Mark. Paul wanted no parts of John Mark. Barnabas was trying to listen, the lad just goofed. I've spoken with him, let's give this he he, let's show some grace, Paul. Paul said, I will show grace, just not today. Later, that great friend, Paul, whom Barnabas lost, Paul later boasts of Barnabas nonetheless, the friendship recovered. Their mutual respect was never lost. He writes to the Colossian church. He says, to He says Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. There's no shame there. He's rejoicing. He's boasting in Barnabas about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. If John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, my friends, if he comes to that church, you guys better take care of him. And he writes in his last letter, maybe a few years before he was actually martyred, but he's thinking he's going to not survive this in prison in 2 Timothy 4. He says, only Luke is with me. But this is, listen what this man on death row says. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. If it weren't for Barnabas, Mark wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be in the picture. Humanly speaking, had Barnabas not been who he was, there'd be no Paul, the apostle. There'd be no John Mark, that we would know of, that did the work that they did. Humanly speaking, had it not been for Barnabas alone, as men go, had he not come to the aid of these two men, we would lack 36% of the New Testament. That's a third of your New Testament gone. Mark's 8%, and Paul's 28%. There would be no letter to the Romans. The two incredible letters to the Corinthians wouldn't have them. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, both Thessalonian letters would not be there. First and second, Timothy, the letter to Pastor Titus, gone. Philemon, Hebrews, gone. And of course, the Gospel of Mark. Again, it's not what we take into heaven, it's what we leave behind. This man could pour a cup of strength into anyone who would hold their cup out. Acts chapter eleven, verses twenty three and twenty four, as we stood and read, and he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. A pause there he encouraged them with purpose. Some encourages are irritating. Because they encourage you, and it's, it's a false encouragement. Oh, things are going, again, things are going to be all right when they have no knowledge it's going to be all right. It's going to get much worse, and they're telling you it's going to be okay. Because they feel like they've got to say something positive. Truth takes back seat to emotions at that point. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad people, but it's just we, we try not to do that. Um, if, at a funeral, you know, especially when there's a lot of grief surrounding, I try and just keep my mouth shut. Till I get into the pulpit and preach from God's word, what am I going to tell the family? It's going to be okay. Uh, They have to work it out themselves. I don't know what it's going to be. Verse twenty-four in Acts chapter eleven, he continues: For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Because when you have a man like that in your environment, things are going to happen for the kingdom. Now, granted, Jeremiah was a man like this too, a righteous man. And things didn't happen the same way. But uh, these men also faced persecution. I'm almost done. Hope needs courage and encouragement, as I mentioned earlier. And there's a difference. Sometimes uh, I, I need someone to encourage me so that later when faced with the opposition, I'll have the courage built on that foundation. I cannot think of a single thing that functions well or as designed by itself. In all of creation, even amongst the Godhead, there's the Trinity. We need other things to do things. It's not just one thing. There are, are combinations of things that we need, thus the armor of Christ that we wouldn't know about had it been, not been for Barnabas. So I don't want to only hope to make it through another day. I mean, you may come to times when you have that season in your life. But you can't, should your entire Christian life be characterized by, I hope I make it through another day. That kind of hope lacks too much courage. Otherwise, if I don't get past that, I will stay on the casualty list. And I don't want to be there. 1 Peter, again, He says, therefore, now he's writing to Christians that are persecuted. First Peter is to Christians who are under persecution. And instead of saying, it's going to be okay, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, he's using it a second time, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a man that knew how to be persecuted. He is a man that was going to die for christ because Christ told him he was going to die for christ may I always be more inspired than inflicted in my approach to Jesus christ may I be more inspired than inflicted first john chapter 3 for this purpose the son of God was manifested what purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil see John to preface that we're talking about you know we're sinners we're all sin. And that sin is not acceptable to God. That's the work of Satan. But Christ has destroyed that work. If you will come to him. To be Christ-like is to say, when I get off this cross, I'm taking a lot of people to heaven with me. That's Christ-likeness. So I have a barrage of verses that i love to read to you. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart while doing good, while other people aren't appreciating your work. Because evil doesn't grow weary. Evil doesn't get tired of harassing you. You better learn to harass back, right? Yes, I say to myself. Hebrews 6, 9, this hope We have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. We go deep into the presence of God. Acts chapter 24, Paul is speaking, giving his his sermon to unbelievers. I have hope in God. He makes that very clear. Which they themselves also accept. That there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. There will be those going to hell and there will be those not going to hell. And I have this hope in God. So, my closing section here, God uses these imperfect imperfect vessels that he has because he has no other. You cannot, the only vessel he can hold and say that this is perfect, of course, is, is the incarnate Christ. Otherwise, we're all defective. But we can be honorable vessels, nonetheless. Like the great Elijah, Barnabas had his stumble too. And it was with Paul, the man he went and fetched twice. In Galatians 2, 3, we read Paul writing to the church in Galatia about this event that happened in Antioch. He says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with Peter. It says him, but he's talking about Peter. So that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. My buddy, the man that faced death with me. Barnabas, the helper, stumbled on that day. But he recovered. Christianity was in jeopardy that day of being no more. Not many are fitted to be Peter's and Paul's. I'm not. But, by the grace of Christ, I could be a Barnabas. I can be a helper. I can be a son of consolation. Paul saw Barnabas in Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus, Philemon was a Christian. Onesimus broke free, (laughs) ran away, stole stuff. He ends up in Rome. He gets saved with Paul. Well, not with Paul, but Paul is the one, the vessel used to bring Onesimus to Christ. And Paul says, you've got to go back. I know Philemon, by the way. You've got to go back. And Onesimus says, okay. So Paul says, I'm going to write a letter for you. Uh, He writes the letter. He says, here, you deliver it. He doesn't send him alone, though. (laughs) So he sends him, and he goes. He delivers this letter. And in that letter, Paul saw in Philemon, the slave owner. Now, don't be one of those people that, oh, you mentioned slavery. Oh, grow grow up. It's part of human history. You're not going to get away from it. They're all forms of slavery. But anyway, Philemon 7, Paul says to him, Paul's writing to the man, for we have great joy and consolation. The same Greek word, comfort, help. We have great joy and consolation in your love. So his love has this Other feature to it, consolation, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Man, that's melting Philemon's heart. How do we know that Philemon submitted to Paul? Well, he publishes the letter. It's a personal letter. It wasn't somebody broke into his dresser drawer. Oh, there's a letter. Just grab it and let's publish it. He made it public to be the cup of strength to another soul in the midst of their sorrow, their trials, their agony, Their service and their routine. That, that is what I want. I close with this verse, Mark chapter 9. From the gospel that we wouldn't have, had it not been from such a man as this, where else are you going to find a character like this in human history? Except in the word of God. You may find similarities in other men, but they won't have the anointing. Mark writes, Jesus speaking. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, surely, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God will make it worthwhile. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, these lessons, they they actually are quite stunning. We actually are very grateful, as you know, pray that Father if any have been listening this morning and they're outside the faith of Christ they've not opened their heart to Christ as they've been listening they've been saying to themselves I want to be right with God I want some of this well then may they make this confession of their own personal sin and their need for your exclusive salvation that comes only from your son if you're watching or listening and you would like to open your heart to Christ and be saved from a judgment to come, that judgment of the just and the unjust alike, one unto condemnation and the other to eternal glory. If you want to be in in that glory that God promises to those who come to him, then you must come and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I come to you to ask that you would forgive me, pardon me. Because of what you've done, dying in my place for my judgment. There's no one else to go to. You are the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to heaven except by you. I come to you, I ask you to forgive me and to be from this day forward. Not only the one that saves my soul from judgment to come, but the one that uses me in this life as my Lord and my Savior. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed. May they act upon it and be quick to tell it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.